welcome to another episode of Division One Basketball. I am your host, Wendell Tong, and on today's episode, we're joined by Josh Oppenheimer, who's a former college coach and a current NBA assistant coach. Josh most recently was with the Brooklyn Nets, and prior to Brooklyn, he spent two seasons with the Houston Rockets, and before that, he was on Jason Kidd's staff with the Milwaukee Bucks. Josh is also a former teammate of mine at Northern Arizona University, where, quite frankly, I led the Big Sky Conference in dunks because of Josh. We used to run a play called Monica. Monica was my mom's name, and the play was really simple. It was basically the power forward or the center setting a back screen on my guy, and I took off to the basket, and Josh would throw, would always throw the perfect pass. I would catch it and dunk it home. Every single time we ran that play, I thought, there's no way this is going to work. Anybody that scouted us knew what Monica was, but yet because Josh threw the perfect pass, because at the time, I actually could jump out of the gym, it would work. I would dunk it home, and uh, it would get us fired up. So I always uh, appreciated having Josh as my point guard in college. But anyways, Josh is going to talk to us a little bit about life in the NBA and the difference between the college game and the pro game and why some players are able to make the seamless transition from college to the NBA and why some players are not. And we'll also talk a little bit about some of the stuff that's going on in college basketball as it pertains to the most recent FBI investigation that just went down and the court case that's happening right now, the trial, I should say, that's going on right now where some assistant coaches were were just doing some improper things that involved Adidas and uh, guys lost their jobs. A whole lot of things came out. Uh, not that there were, there were any new revelations as it pertained to cheating in college basketball, but uh, there were some, some surprising outcomes that we're still learning about. So Josh and I will talk a little bit about that today. So in any event, sit back, relax, enjoy another episode of Division One Basketball. We're joined by Josh Oppenheimer, and uh, he's our guest on Division One Basketball. This is Wendell Tull, and you are listening to the Division1Basketball.com podcast. And I am on the line with a former teammate of mine who played with me at the college level at Northern Arizona University, Josh Oppenheimer. And Josh and I go way back. We were having a conversation on the phone the other day, and it dawned on me that I met him when I was 20 years old. And now, 30 years later, you know, we're we're getting a chance to revisit some of what our experiences were like, not only playing together, but then after we left college, what paths we took, which direction we went into. Josh has a really interesting story. And for those of you out there that are listening to us on the Division One Basketball.com podcast, Josh has major coaching experience at the college level. And then he went on and became an assistant coach in the NBA, working with Houston, Milwaukee, the New Jersey, or actually Brooklyn Nets now. And so he has a really fascinating story. But I want to just uh, take a, a trip down memory lane and, and talk a little bit about what, you know, what it was like for us playing college basketball together. But before we get into that, we'll, we'll go back and, and just kind of um, step back into your career. You started out playing as a as a high school player in Los Angeles at mm-hmm. high school? I went to Notre Dame High School in Sherman Oaks. 
Great. And then you played for your head coach was? I played for a guy, two coaches, Matt Vickers and Nick Cady, who were both terrific high school coaches and just overall great guys. Yeah. And you were saying that uh, when we were talking a little bit off the air, you were saying that they were hard on you, right? They they basically expected a lot from you. You were very talented. And, and you know, and, and you, you know, this is a coach, the, the guys that get on you, it's because they care about you, right? If they stop talking to you, it means that they can care less, right? Because they don't think you have, you know, any potential. You may be, you know, tapped out. But, but talk about that experience and how they made you a better player. No, it's it's you're a hundred percent right, and um, and they were on me a lot. I think back, probably if I if I wouldn't have said anything back, maybe they would have been on me a little bit less. But you know, you get older and you learn. But I remember a story from my sophomore year. I mean, I'm, I'm 6'2", 190 pounds now. My sophomore year in high school, I might have been 5'7", 100 and maybe 30 pounds. <laughs> and Coach Vickers was big into conditioning. And, I mean, he walked the walk. He did everything with us, all the lifting, all the running. And we had to run with 15-pound weight jackets on. Now, I'm 127 pounds. I got to... I got a weight jacket on it, and, and it's not the, the newfangled fancy ones. It's the old vest where you put some bags in the front and some bags in the back. So as soon as you start running, these things start flapping against you, and it's like getting punched in the gut for as long as you're running. We had a good high school team. We had, you know, some size. I think our whole front line, our center, uh, ended up, starting for three years at Colorado as a tight end when they were in their prime. We had a, we had another big guy, another 6'8 guy. So them running with a 15-pound weight vest and me as a 14-year-old running with a 15-pound weight vest are a little bit different. And I just remember one Saturday morning we had conditioning. I had run around the track for the last time, man. Okay. And I took off the, I took off the weight vest. And I threw it on the ground, <laughs> and I said, there's not one guy in this team who can beat me one-on-one. When they do, I'll put the weight vest back on, but I'm not running anymore. So he told me, if you walk off this track, you'll never play, <laughs> you'll never play here. <laughs> well, I walked, and I got about a, a step. It was kind of like the scene in Field of Dreams. I got up to the corn, and I stuck my foot across, and it kind of disappeared. And I realized if I went across that line, I was probably never coming back. So I turned around, put the weight vest back on, and trudged around the track a few more times. And just a small thing you realize later just helps you learn resiliency, helps you learn you can do things you can't do. And and I'll always thank him and, and Coach Katie as well for, you know, instilling that in me and hard work and, and just pushing me and, and making me do stuff that was uncomfortable, making me do stuff that was out of the box. But just great guys, great family men terrific mentors for young people. That's awesome. And so talk about once you were experiencing some success as a high school player, what was your rationale in thinking that, you know, I could actually play this game now at another level. I could play at the collegiate level because was that, was that something that you were thinking about from the time you started playing basketball or were you just like, you know, it's not. Yeah, you know, I, I was one of those guys, and I think it helped me a little bit. Obviously, it can hurt you some, too. I always had big dreams and pretty lofty goals and a pretty high opinion of myself, and I always felt like I was pretty good, and I always, and I always wanted 
to play in college. I mean, you know, games were on, you know, NBA, you know, this shows our age, but tape delay, NBA finals, watching those, you know, running out to the park, trying to, you know, mimic whether it was Magic or Michael Cooper or Norm Nixon, those guys when I was really young. And I always noticed I played more than everybody else. And I'd gravitate towards better older players, try to sort of follow their lead, try to listen. You know, if I went to a basketball camp and they said, you know, you got to be the first one in the gym, the last one to lead, I would try to do it. I remember hearing one time that, hey, the kids in New York, they got a three-hour advantage on you. And so when you're waking up, maybe they've already been in the gym for two hours. Um, all that stuff kind of stuck with me. You know, and you didn't have you didn't have social media, you didn't have YouTube, you didn't have all that stuff. So you just sort of went by what you heard, and you just you either decided to believe it or you didn't. And I believed it, and I tried to do what other good players did and sort of mimic it. And I think you know it helped me that I probably thought I was a little bit better than I was, but because of it, I wasn't afraid of the moment. I wasn't afraid of big name players. I always thought, you know, if I missed, it was probably the ball or the rim. It wasn't me. But it was, you know, I always tell people now, you know, I, we were teammates. So, you know, you saw it firsthand. I would shoot and I would shoot and I would shoot and I would shoot and I would shoot. And I was always in the gym. And somebody asked me one day, why don't you golf? And I said, because if I golf, I'd never see, I, I see my wife and kids barely now because of my job, I'd never see him because I'd be out there putting and chipping and driving because it's it's my personality to do that. And it just, it helped. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't the athlete you were. I didn't have, you know, the size and the length that somebody like you were, were blessed with. So I had to do it with skill and, and, and confidence and, and being resilient in a lot of things and being told, no, you're not good enough a lot and fighting and and it paid off for me. And, you know, you go back and you live and learn. And there were some times I got to a fork in the road and very comfortable, you know, at my age now saying if I would have gone right, things probably could have been easier for me. I chose to go left. But, you know, everybody has a story and, and you get through your story your own way. And, and, you know, hopefully I have a lot more years to live here. My story's not written because there's a lot of things I still want to do that I think I can do. And, but basketball just afforded me so many things, man. I mean, from, you know, friends and, and education and the ability to, you know, play on TV and ju just so many things and to see the world. I mean, I've, I've been around the world and gone to places that as a kid, I didn't know anything about Dubai or the United Arab Emirates and, you know, been there. I've been basically everywhere in the United States, almost everywhere in Europe. And, and it's a, it's an education that, as you know, a book can't give you. And it's, it was, you know, I had a blast and, and it's all because of a ball. And it's uh, a lot of people say it, but it's, I'm, I've been blessed. And, and, and I, again, it's, it's, I can't, I can't thank that ball enough for everything that it's done for me. Sure. Yeah. I, I always say that too. And, and, you know, I took a path in higher education where professionally that's where I spent a majority of my career working at different universities. And I loved working with young people. And, and my, my take on it was 
my experience, even though, and you know, we could talk about this a little bit, our, our basketball experience in terms of wins, losses, wasn't, you know, anything that, that you would reflect on and go, wow, that was really quite the career that we had. But in terms of, you know, relationships and, and outside of basketball and, and the experience of being a college athlete or just a student athlete was, was something that I, I truly relished. I enjoyed my time as a as a as a college student and and of course playing basketball but uh, my 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 belief was if i if i couldn't be a student athlete anymore it'd be really cool to work on a college campus and so i i went in that direction and that afforded me also an opportunity to travel all over the country and and to to go to europe and get to experience different cultures and and of course my i'm a first generation american so my my parents immigrated to this to this country and and i I used to travel to their country in the summer and, you know, to play basketball and, and to go into different arenas around the country and to see what, what that experience is like. You know, I, I wouldn't have traded that for anything in the world. And I always tell people, if you have an opportunity to be able to do that, mm-hmm. uh, please <laughs> take it. But let's talk about the, I want to talk about coach Benezra and AAU ball. I don't remember. Did you actually play, you played with LA Rockfish, right? I was one of the the original, and I say it proudly, one of the original LA Rockfish players. Yeah, he Coach Benezra really had it going, from what I understand, and and definitely you'll share this with the with the with the audience. But and I was talking to uh, Josh Pastner from Georgia Tech, head men's basketball coach, and he was saying, "Wow, Benezra, when he had it going, and the LA AAU scene." at one time was there was none better in the country than what was going on in LA. Mm-hmm. But what Benezra had going on there with, with Rockfish and the players coming through there was, was something else. Talk about, talk about that experience. I mean, if, you know, I talked about coach Katie and coach Vickers, but if I could, you know, a male, a male figure in my life who has had as big influence on me as anybody, are two people, Benny Davenport, who ran the West Side Blazers, and Dave Benezra. And I bring up Benny because Benny put me in touch with Dave Benezra. My first meeting with him was he came to the UCLA men's gym. And I was probably 12 or 13 years old, and somebody, Benny had told him about me, and he had a high school AAU team, and AAU wasn't as big then. There were a couple teams in L.A., you had the L.A. Junior Lakers. You had the Rockfish, which was a a spinoff of the Junior Lakers because D- Dave used to coach with the Junior Lakers. You had the Watts Magicians, ran by Joe Clark, and most of the Crenshaw guys and Bourbon Day guys played for them. And, and, that, and that was kind of it. And everything, obviously, it's grown so much now. But the great thing about L.A. was if you didn't make one of these teams, they used to have something called the Watts Summer Games. And you would just play with your high school team. And it was a huge tournament, and, uh, and the city put it on. And, and those were heated, heated games. And, you know, it isn't like now where nobody played with their high school team. So if, if you didn't make one of these three or four AAU teams, and I was fortunate enough to make one, you played with your high school team, and that was high-level basketball. You know, and, and I used to tell people, and I told them this when I, uh, when I started coaching in college, you know, you can be the 86th best player in Los Angeles. You're pretty darn good. It's such a big city and it's so spread out. And, you know, you, you're the 86th best player in Los Angeles. You might be the second best player in Kansas. 
so there's so many players and there, there's so much competition. But getting back to Dave, Dave worked me out. And again, I thought I was pretty good. Dave made me feel like I had never played basketball before. He went and told the guy who asked him to work me out, this kid stinks, he'll never be good, this, this, and that. I heard this, and I went and I went and did every drill he had me do till I perfected it, called him, and said, work me out again. He worked me out again, and I think, you know, showing him that it was important enough for me to go and master these skills that I couldn't do, that he was having me do, he took a special interest in me and thought I had a little something in me and became almost like a father to me. You know, taught me, obviously taught me so much about the game of basketball, but so much about life and was always there for me and, you know, good times, bad times, in my wedding, everything. He was, and he did it his way. You know, it's, he had, he had the rockfish and, you know, there, we didn't have sponsorship. We had some people who helped with some money, but it was very, very basic. But we had good players year after year. The, you know, his program grew, but he always kept it a little bit smaller. You know, it didn't blow up like some of the bigger ones, but, you know, he's always had, you know, terrific players come through there. He's had NBA guys come through there and, and just good people. And I think everybody, even to this day, I'll get text messages from people I don't know that say, hey, Dave and Ezra told me to text you. I'm a, I'm a young coach, but I'm a rockfish. And, you know, it's it's something that we share. And so if I can help because somebody helped me, I'll do that. But it's uh, he's quite a man, and, and he's helped a lot of people, an unbelievable coach with a very innovative, different way of thinking and coaching but just a great person and a great friend and a great mentor. Yeah, I always thought he was just a good guy, and, and, and obviously I didn't know him as well as you did, but the short period of time that I got to spend with him on campus, I, I was just like, wow, I wish this guy was in my life at a much younger age because mm-hmm. I would have I would have been, I literally would have blossomed because in a little bit of time that I was with him, I was just like, this guy, we we have the wrong people coaching us right now. <laughs> What's going on? Here? I was like, hey, dude, how do I get a meeting with the, with the athletic director who, who who we'll talk about you know a little bit later in this podcast? But yeah, so I I, I was thought and I loved hearing the stories about you know just just what it was like playing uh, the circuit in in L.A. and and like I said, spending a little bit of time with Coach Passner from Georgia Tech. He was talking about man back in the day, you would go out and 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 Dave had it going, and you knew the players that were in his program could flat out play, and they also had tough skin because, like you said, he wasn't easy on any of you guys, and of course that benefited you down the road because you get into college, and some guys are in for a rude awakening. Like for instance, when I I watched a lot of AAU ball. My godson was playing on a on a little AAU team in the Bay Area where I live, and I went up to Las Vegas where, you know, you recruited there before when the summer tournaments are going on up there, and one of the really good teams from this area are the Oakland Soldiers, and they always have really good players end up going on to play in college. But when I watch some of these kids, they literally think they have arrived. Some of these kids, and, and part of that, thinking is because I see the interaction that they're having with their coaches and the coaches are like, well, you're the best player. So take us to the promised land. They basically get away with whatever they want to get away with. And I watch and I look at body language a lot. And I know when you were working as a college coach, 
you probably paid a lot of attention to body language of players when they were interacting with their teammates and with their coaches. And if you really felt like someone was going to be a turd, if you recruited them and you got on campus, you know, you probably were like, I'm staying away from this kid, regardless of how good of a player they were. And some coaches think that they could coach somebody up and they're going to change their attitude and then give them a rude awakening when they got on campus. But, you know, talk about what you've seen in terms of the changes when you watch AAU basketball and you certainly you don't watch it as much now as, as, a, as a professional coach. But, you know, what what the difference was when we played and when you played in L.A. and what you would have seen when you were working as a college coach? Well, I, I think the the players right now are so much bigger physically. They're almost already fully matured, a lot of them. They're so talented. They all have trainers from young, young ages. So skill-wise, a lot of them are so much further ahead than when we were playing. I mean, if you were playing in this day and age, you know, you would have been handling the ball and, you know, doing whatever you wanted from the age of nine, where you probably ran into being the biggest kid out there and and didn't get a chance to do all of that. But I think what's sort of, there's so much specialization and there's so much coddling because it's unfortunate, but some of these young players, potential-wise, are small companies. And they have, if they can get there, the ability to make so much money and take care of so many people that unfortunately there are people who get their hooks into them and they latch on to them and it becomes a goal for not only the player but for the people around them. So you don't, and because these people don't want to lose the player, discipline has gone out the window. Nothing, Nothing's ever their fault. They don't have to act a certain way. They're not required to hold up, you know, be held up to a certain standard. It's just so much different, and talent wins. And everybody is trying to get talent, and you made, you know, until there's no more basketball, there's always going to be a school, there's always going to be a coach, there's always going to be a team that thinks he had problems there, but if he's with us, he'll be okay. Sometimes that's true. More times than not, probably can't teach an old dog new tricks which is unfortunate because we've both seen super, super talented guys fall by the wayside. But there's so much, you know, I was thinking today and, you know, with transferring, I would have never left my high school. There are guys who go to four or five high schools, let alone three high schools in four years, you know, play for four, five, six AAU teams because they're just, the deal is better over here. Or if I'm not good enough to play here, my... Mom, dad, uncle, so-and-so, whoever, will just start their own team so I can play. And so there's there's not as much, you know, stick-to-itiveness. I don't think kids are as mentally tough, but I do think they are way ahead talent, skill-wise. Athleticism is much different, but it's, it's, it's very watered down because there are so many teams Nobody ever has to deal with adversity. 
So there's a difference. You know, there are so many kids in college now transferring. I can understand if you, you know, take a picture and you look and you go, okay, I came here and there's three kids ahead of me and I only have four years and I'm never going to get a chance to play and I want to play, so I'm going to transfer. But these kids who are transferring around who are McDonald's All-Americans and, you know, they weren't the leading scorer or they didn't get to shoot as much as they want, so they transfer somewhere else. And usually it doesn't work out real well for those guys. You know, there, there, there's always a reason to transfer somewhere, and I am the first one to say that sometimes there are a lot of good reasons. My fear is that a lot of this is sort of programmed early, that if it just doesn't work for you here, go somewhere else. And if it doesn't work for you there, go somewhere else. But it's it's big business. It is huge business. When you have the ability to get to the NBA and and sign a couple deals that can make you upwards of $250 million, there are a lot of people who are going to do a lot of stuff for you when you were young and make you feel pretty good about yourself because they want it to work out for not only you but for them. And it's just different. I mean, it was a big deal for us to watch ourselves on TV. These kids have seen each other so many times on social media and highlight films and, you know, on TV and this and that. It's not. It's nothing to them. It's it's nothing. Well, of course. And it's funny because, of course, once again, aging ourselves, if you heard about a player, you, you basically, they were like an urban legend, essentially. Or, yeah. or, you know, it was just like, oh, did you hear about this guy? He could jump so high. He could get, you know, quarters off a of top of a backboard or, you know, this dude never misses or whatever. But until you actually walked out on the court and and basically saw that player, you had no idea if what was true and what, what wasn't, you know, or you would go to a, a camp, you know, like a five-star camp or something like that, and then you get to see some of these guys. But it's so different now. Like you said, everybody is recording everything that they're doing. They're putting it on their Instagram. They're putting it on their YouTube. When I was talking to a kid, I was working in Europe, and one player that I was working with, he was just like, hey, um, uh, have you seen so-and-so player? And I said, you know, no, I haven't. And he's like, well, you know, check him out on YouTube. His YouTube channel is this. And it's like, oh, I got to make sure that, that you, you check him out on his YouTube. And everybody had a YouTube channel. And it was like like a professionally done YouTube channel where they had somebody following them with a, a camcorder at the time. And then before, you know, phone cameras got better. And now they're really good, so sophisticated that you can actually take your, you know, your whatever your, your smartphone is and, and record some really good footage. But I thought it was the funniest thing. It was almost just like if you don't have like a, a media presence, then you're you're not doing it the right way. And of course, everyone wants to make themselves look good. And so they're not showing all the faults or the flaws in their game. But I was really surprised. I was listening to Bobby Knight. He was talking about how uh, the lack of discipline in players today and he was saying these players today are the same that they were 30 40 50 years ago it's just the coaches are different and the parents are different mm-hmm. kids still want to be disciplined yeah so I agree. Let, me a- let me ask you because i i think these kids today are so sensitive and i watch someone you know like let's say for an example like a frank martin who gets into his guys and he doesn't care if he's on national tv or not he's if you if he did something that that doesn't work for him he's gonna let you know and and you know very animated guy and then you have coaches that they're really good about restraining themselves 
during the course of a game. But of course, when they get in the locker room or behind closed doors, then they get after you. But let me ask you, do you think that in order to be successful on a college level today as a coach, you have to kind of be able to balance both styles of coaching, like be able to to get into your guys, but still have them respect you and, and still feel like they can come to you when they need you, you know, or do you feel like it's still, there's still a place for a coach to, to just get into you all the time and, and without losing the message, you know what I mean? Without a kid finally saying, you know what, enough is enough. I, I got to transfer because this, this guy is just not giving me a break. You know what, what do you think uh, in terms of the way you see coaches? And I know not every style has to be exactly the same, but, but in your opinion, the way that coaches are dealing with players today, do you think there has to be some kid gloves in some instances uh, in order for you to be able to get the best players and not have players be like, man, I don't want to go play with this guy because he's going to be embarrassing me on national TV? I mean, what do, you, what do you feel about that? Well, times have definitely changed. And the key word I think you used was respect. Right. You know, when we were kids, you respected your teachers. Mm-hmm. You respected your coaches. You respected, you know, older adults. That's not the way it is anymore. Yeah, that's true. You have to earn kids' respect. Yeah, that's that's hard. I hate hearing you say that, and it's so true. That's the thing that's so crazy. And it's it just and it's the way it is, and yeah, you know, and 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 it's. Maybe it's good in some ways because you develop a relationship with a young person and you that maybe you wouldn't have before because you were just coach, teacher, supervisor. But it's a generation of, you know, why? They want they want to know, why are you telling me to do this? What's the reason you're having me do this? I don't think this is going to work. And there are the few coaches, you know, who have the ability to, jump into a guy or jump into a girl's face and bark at him and yell at him. And, and that's the way that they are. And if you want to play for them, you're just going to have to deal with it. Those coaches are fewer and far between, but I'm not, I'm not saying there's not a time and a place for that. You can't do, you cannot do that in the NBA ever. It is a player's league and the players will turn on you and, and you'll be out of a job. College is more about, you know, the coaches still. You know, you see you see a college, a preview for a college game, you know, they got John Calipari and Roy Williams up on the screen. They don't have the players where if it's the NBA and it's Houston, Oklahoma City, you got James Harden and Russell Westbrook up on the picture. So it's different. So coaches, some are still able to do that. Um, you brought up Frank Martin. Frank's always been like that. You know, Bob Huggins has always been the way he is, you know, but they, I think one great thing they do is for the most part, they go out and and they do research and they find out the kids that they can coach like that. They don't pull punches and I'm sure they're not bringing kids to campus and, you know, acting like they're walking around every day with a picnic basket and they're doing everything for you. They're on TV way too much now to, to hide who they are, but it's a, it's a much, much different generation and it's times change. You know, our parents, grandparents would tell us there's no way we could handle their generation that we were too soft and too spoiled and this and that. And, and, and we're the same way now. 
but it is what it is. And you either change with the times or, or you get left behind. I think, you know, Brad Stevens is a great example of that. He's very, you know, stoic and mild mannered and, but he's a terrific, terrific coach. And I'm sure he gets on those guys some, but he realizes, Hey, I can't, I can't jump in Jason Tatum's face and start screaming at him in the middle of a game. I'll lose him. You know, that's, that's sort of that, that's how it is in this day and age. And I would think if you look at the successful coaches now, you know, the Steve Kerr's and the Brad Stevens and Mike D'Antoni and those guys, they're standing there and they're letting their players play. And they're very, very thorough and thoughtful before they, you know, open up their can on a guy and get after him. Where, you know, I played for high school guys who yelled and screamed. I know when we were teammates in college, we played for guys who yelled and screamed. But thinking back, it's funny. I always did better when a guy just talked to me because I wanted to be successful too. You know, I don't think any player wants to make a mistake. And the last thing you want to be, you know, after you make a mistake is yelled at or embarrassed. And, but it's the heat of a game and it happens. And, you know, I think the difference is now, though, that you see more players yelling back. And the days of you talk back to a coach, you're out of here, are over. Now it's a conversation and, you know, and, and you work through it and you keep going. And it's just right, wrong, and different. It's just the way things are. And, and it's, uh, but it's, but it's different. <laughs> it's definitely different for guys from our era. Yeah, I was watching um, Dana Carvey, the comedian, was was uh, doing a little bit on uh, he was in a supermarket or some public place. And there was a little girl that wasn't listening to her mom and her mom was basically trying to plead with her to stop touching things, basically. (laughs) And Dana Carvey was like, it was so painful to watch this interaction between this mother and her daughter because she was literally negotiating with her daughter to try to get her to behave. And he was like, he was like, I just miss the good old days when your mom or your dad would say, shut the fuck up and go sit down in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? You know what? If you do that from day one. Yeah. They're okay. Right. But they're smart. They're smarter (laughs) than we are. You start negotiating with them day one. Right. They'll realize. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's human nature and shoot, if my dog barks at me and I give the dog a biscuit and the dog's going to keep barking at me again until I give it a biscuit and I can yell at it as much as I want. Please stop. Please stop barking. The dog's going, why should I stop? I know if I keep barking, you're going to give me a milk bone. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. You know, exactly. so it's... Uh, well, I, I remember my my parents were they were pretty strict. They were they were disciplinarians. The the place that they grew up in that was just a culture. You know that there weren't. My parents didn't repeat themselves a lot. Let me just say that it was mm-hmm. basically my mom would say, "I'm going to ask you a question," and this is so politically incorrect, but this is what she would say. She would go, "Now you tell me if you're mentally retarded, then I'm going to give you a second chance. But if you're telling me you're not retarded," I'm going to beat the shit out of you. And you're just like, well, let me think. I could tell her I'm retarded, (laughs) but that sounds really stupid. But then if I tell her I understood what she said and I still did the opposite, she's going to beat the shit out of me. But 
the reality was she would she would get into my brother and sister and I, but it didn't have to happen a lot because that first time she did it, it was like, whoa, that was serious. She meant business. So there wasn't a lot of repeating. Right. And now I look at parents today and they go, I don't have any control over my kids. They won't listen to me. It's like, well, you gave them so much rope at the beginning that now when you're trying to pull back, they're going, what, what are you talking about? If if you put your hands on your kid, and I don't definitely don't condone this. I, I, I certainly wouldn't do it the same way my parents did. But if you thought about doing that with your kid, they'd be like, okay, I'm going to call my attorney right now. And we're going to see, you know, how quickly we can get you thrown in jail. It, it's just like, you could forget it. Right. And it's the same thing. Like you were just talking about the way you interact with players. It's like, they're, wait, who are you talking to? They're looking over their shoulder going, I know you're not talking to me because no one talks to me like that. My AU coach didn't talk to me like that. You know, my, I mean, it's just like, it's it's crazy. And I hate sounding like the old head and, and going, man, I just, I, I miss the good old days when guys went out and played, didn't have to, you know, hit each other, you know, in the chest if they made a shot. I'm watching highlights of guys missing shots, right? Because they're like, oh, did you see that shot he almost made? Because someone did a, a crossover, and maybe caught somebody up and broke their ankles or whatever. And they didn't even make the basket, but they're showing the move, right? Like, oh, or someone going to try to dunk it and they don't make the dunk, but it looked like if they made it, it was going to be a great dunk. So they get up off the bench and they're walking and they're posing. And I'm just like, seriously, is that what it is? And and like I said, I hate sound like the old head. Cause I'm like, all right, they're having fun. That wasn't really me, but it's a different era, you know? And, and, I, I used to work for Michael Cooper when he was playing for the Los Angeles Lakers, and he hired me to be one of his camp counselors. And I remember when he would basically, he would have different players come in as guest speakers. And, and one day he had James Worthy come in as a as a guest speaker. And then, of course, after all the kids went home, then he closed the doors and they let us play. And at the time, I was in high school and in the college guys, and we're talking about now at the University of New Mexico. So Hunter, who you know, Hunter Green, Hunter, of course, every time I, I mention Josh Oppenheimer, he goes, yeah, Josh was walking around with Pooh Richardson sneakers and he was only like 12 years old. He's wearing these oversized sneakers. <laughs> and he was he was like remembers that for some reason. But, you know, we would be out there playing and it didn't matter how good of a move you made, what kind of a shot you made to, to, to win that game. You basically just turned around and you maybe high fived your guys and, and that was it. Right. Today, it's just like, man, you know, you see guys posing and, and, and just, just, you know, stunting like it's like, like they just arrived, you know, and, and, uh, and I think it's just really, it's comical, you know, at times. And, and sometimes, you know, there's a place for it. I remember in, in the, I guess this would have been the playoffs last year in the NBA when, um, Tatum, he had that dunk on LeBron, right? And what did he do? He like, he like hit LeBron in the chest or something like that, or he bumped into him just to be like, "Hey, did you see that?" LeBron looked at him like, "What? What is this?" You know, it was like, "We're gonna win this series." Like, I, I don't know why you stunning on me right now, but um, it's just like that—that that whole culture of like, "Look at me, right? Look at me. I just did something great." It's like, well, but you know, first of all, did that point or those points come during crunch time when your team really needed it, or? Did it happen in the first quarter when who cares, right? You know, uh, I don't know if you remember Steve Coulter. Steve Coulter played at New Mexico State, and I used to play pickup with Steve in, when he would, he would come back home, and he actually moved to Arizona, and I used to see him all the time. We'd run up and down the court, and Steve was like, 
Wendell, I'm telling you, guys don't start playing in the NBA until like, you know, the third, fourth quarter. He's like, I used to score like 12 points a game just running down the court because nobody wanted to guard me, right? I was just sprinting up and down the court with my little socks pulled up to my knees. And uh, and he was just like, he was like, but, you know, crunch time, then I knew how to who to get the ball to. It was like, you know, I knew who, who the number one stud was on my team. But today it's just like everybody's like, I'm not getting my shots. You know, I, I'm in a contract year. It's just, it's just really crazy. But before we get into like a deep dive into the NBA, I want to go back to your journey a little bit. And when we were in college and you had transferred from Rhode Island, but you were fortunate in that you went to a sweet 16, right? As a player at Rhode Island, talk about what that was like. You know, you, you get to Rhode Island, first of all, coming out of high school, what other schools were you looking at before you decided you were going to go to Rhode Island? Well, it's funny. I, I wasn't, I wasn't looking at Rhode Island at all. I had taken, I had visited USC. I had visited DePaul. Xavier and St. John's and I was going to make my decision out of those. And I decided I was going to go to DePaul. They had Rod Strickland, Dallas Comages. They had some, one of my AU teammates, Kevin Holland was already there and I didn't sign early. I was waiting till late and I played in an all-star game at the end of my senior year. And Tom Penders, who was the Rhode Island coach was at the game watching somebody else and asked about me and I said, I talked to him and why not? He came to my house the next night and sat with me and my mom and we just really hit it off. The only thing I knew about Rhode Island was I knew Providence, you know, I knew Rick Pitino and I knew Billy Donovan and I thought they were terrific. So I started to listen a little bit and style of play and they were scoring in the nineties, which was different then. And, he had taken over that year. They had won five games the year before. They won 24 games in his first year. And I had one visit left, and me and my mom said, hey, go check it out. And I went and I went out there, and I had never, I had never been to Rhode Island. It was beautiful. I just I liked the players. I liked where they were going. They were playing in the Atlantic 10. I liked the conference. And I switched up, and I decided to go there. I remember I came back to my high school and I had a URI sweatshirt on and a classmate of mine asked me who Yuri was. And I thought to myself, boy, did I make a bad decision? <laughs> <laughs> I've worked my whole life and I'm going to a school and I wear their sweatshirt with pride around my high school and nobody even knows what it is. But it ended up being great. We had a, you know, my freshman year was great. Personally, I, I did very well. Our team did better than anybody probably but us thought we could do. You know, during the regular season, we had a terrific year. We just happened to be in the same league as Temple, who at that point was number one in the country. And they had Tim Perry and Mark Macon and uh, Howie Evans. And, you know, we went, we at one point were 28 and three. They were 27 and one. And we lost three games in the conference, all of them to them. But we got into the NCAA tournament, and when you talk about a guy, you know, I think about it, obviously I've worked for Mike D'Antoni, and uh, I see the way he is, but you talk about a guy who instilled confidence in his players and his track record for success at all the places he's been, but I've never been around a guy like Tom Penders who made you feel like that there was nobody better 
my first college game, we were playing Virginia and I came in off the bench and I'm nervous and the ball swings to me and I catch it. And I look like I was out of a basketball camp video. I was left, right, catch, shot, fake, pass the ball. Same thing the next time the ball came to me. We went down on defense. There was a dead ball. The horn came and he took me out. And all I could think of was, thank God I didn't screw up while I was in. So I get in the game and we're playing at Virginia. They got a pretty good team and it's early in the year and ball came to me and stepped in left, right, shot fake, ball up to my eyes like they teach at basketball camp, passed it. Ball came back around to me again, did the same thing, made a pass. We end up scoring. We go down on defense. Ball goes out of bounds. The horn blows. Takes me out. I'm thinking, great. Played about 45 seconds, about five minutes into the game. I didn't screw up. You know, must. And he grabs me, and he says, so you're telling me I went 3,000 miles to recruit a kid that I can put my daughter in the game and she can do what you just did? And I kind of looked at him. He said, go sit down. When you're ready to go back in and be the player I know you are, go check in. I literally sat down for a second, ran back in, and this definitely shows our age. It was the second year of the three-point line in college, I believe. (laughs) I took seven threes in the next five minutes. And at halftime... I'm thinking he's going to rip me apart. He's in there telling everybody how I got the biggest balls in the world and more guts than anybody because I'm not afraid to shoot. And I think that, you know, transpired into why he can take, he could take a guy like Tommy Garrick, who was ready to transfer from Rhode Island and ended up averaging, you know, 20 plus points for two more years. And Carlton Owens was able to score 2,500 points in his career and, you know, he goes on to Texas and, you know, he takes Lance Blanks and Travis Mays and Joey Wright. And they're all of a sudden they're talking about the Texas two-step and, you know, those guys score a ton of points. And then he goes to George Washington and he's always done a lot with a lot of guys who people sort of gave up on or never thought were good enough. And just a great, great coach, a great, great man. And Obviously, my freshman year, we had a little bit more success than anybody thought we'd have and made it to the Sweet 16, beat Missouri, who had a guy named Derek Chivas, Doug Smith, Lee Coward, Byron Irvin. You know, they had four or five NBA players. We beat them. Then we beat Syracuse with Ronnie Cycli and, you know, Derek Coleman, Stevie Thompson, Sherman Douglas, Billy Owens. And then we run into Duke who had Danny Ferry and Quinn Snyder who's now the coach of the Utah Jazz and some other guys, and they beat us by one. The unfortunate thing was, for me, it gave Tom Penders a national exposure, and within a week he was the coach of Texas. So I ended up staying one more year and wasn't the same. Al Skinner took over, who was a terrific coach, but just played a totally different style. Obviously, a great success at Rhode Island and a great success at Boston College and is now doing now doing a terrific job at Kennesaw State trying to get their program going. But it was just a different style of play. And, you know, I ended up transferring. And you talked about, you know, Dave Benezra. He became an assistant in Northern Arizona. And I thought, why not go and transfer and play for a guy that, that I have ultimate faith in? So myself and a couple other guys transferred in and, 
And that's what led me to NAU. Yeah. When you look back on that time that we were on the basketball team at, at Northern Arizona, you you know, you think about the guys, Dave Wolf coming in from BYU and Mike Heron coming in from BYU and, you know, Archie and all these guys that were from so many different parts of the country. Did you think this is going to be, we could, we could be okay. Were you like, I have no idea. I don't know anything about the big sky conference. Uh, there isn't any reason why we shouldn't have success. You know, what, what were you thinking in regards to what you expected your experience to be like at, at Northern Arizona? Well, when I transferred in, the coach made it very clear that he was bringing myself, some other guys, and then he was going to recruit a slew of really good players. I didn't know who any of them were. You know, funny thing, when I visited NAU, they actually beat a really good Weber State team. So I'm thinking, oh, you know, you can win here. You got some players. You know, Steve Williams was there, who was a good player as a freshman. And then, you know, the next year I was there sitting out, and, you know, that's when I took so many guys on so many visits, I could write a book on how to conduct an official visit. <laughs> I mean, between Mike Herring and Dave Wolf and you and Dave Truell and Archie Tolliver and, I mean, Corey Rogers. And, you know, we get all of us on campus and we start playing. And I'm coming from a place where, you know, we had gone to the Sweet 16 and I'm looking around at our guys and I'm like, we're, we're not far behind from a talent standpoint. Getting all that talent to mesh, you know, was another thing. And, you know, we were talking about earlier, you know, to get guys to come to a place where maybe they shouldn't be going because they have, you know, quote unquote, you know, bigger, better places they can go. Everybody was probably told they were going to be the guy. And I think a lot of us all thought we were going to be the guy. And instead of, you know, us putting all our collective talents together, you know, on a consistent basis, I think we would do it here and there. And we would show that, hey, we, we have the ability to be pretty good. It was just a matter of, you know, doing it consistently. We could never do it. But I never thought it was because of lack of talent. If you look through our league. I don't think from a talent standpoint, many teams had more talent than we did. They, but they had better teams. They played, you know, as a team better than us. And, and, and we were young people. And, you know, that falls a little bit on the coaches. And, you know, we had a couple coaching changes while we were there. And, but talent-wise, and talent-wise, I thought we had really good talent. And I also thought for the most part we had really good guys because we had a lot of fun spending time together. Because that's one thing I tell people. We were, we were together all the time. You know, we went everywhere together. There was rarely a party or a, a restaurant or somewhere where we were, you know, apart. And uh, we just couldn't we just couldn't bottle that consistency and win enough games. When I talk to to players and young players, obviously you're going to have everyone's going to have a different experience. My sister, she was everything in, in, in high school, all whatever. And she, as a junior, she was dominating our state in basketball. And she went to five-star in Atlanta. But it, it wasn't Atlanta. It was outside of Atlanta where she went and basically got her ass handed to her. She was like, she thought she was the shit. And she came back from five-star and just killed it. You know, was killing it 
all the biggest women's basketball programs were coming to our house and sitting down on the couch trying to recruit her to go to play. She ended up at Texas Tech and redshirted her fresh her freshman year and played four seasons. They won a national championship the year after she graduated. But she played with at the time who was considered the best women's basketball player on the planet, which who was Cheryl Swoops. And and I remember and my sister got invited to a couple of Olympic training camps. And I remember talking to her about her experience and how vastly different it was from our experience from a playing perspective. Like she was like, well, you know, I was telling her, I go, it's, it's such a strange situation here where, you know, it's like we, we don't play that much basketball in practice. And she was like, what do you mean by that? I was like, I feel like we just don't play enough. I feel like there's a lot of talking going on. Coaches are trying to coach. I don't know that they really know how to use any of us in the right way, but from a basketball perspective, I was just like, I feel like we don't even play that much basketball. And she was like, she goes, well, she goes, well, do you have keys to the, to the gym? I go, I can get into an auxiliary gym and play if I wanted to, but I can't get into the place where we actually play our games and, and play. And she was like, that's crazy. Like you can't, she was like, you can't actually get into the place where you guys play your games, your home games. And I go, no, if I want to go in there, it's like the floor might not be down. You know, they'll have the baskets down. They don't want anybody out there. It's like you can't you can't get in. It's almost like my home games are like a road game because I'm seeing the court almost as much as the road team that comes in and gets to spend the day before going through walkthrough and putting up a bunch of shots. Whereas where she played at, everyone had a key to to the arena and they would go in there and you could play at any time of the night. You know, I, I was at Eastern Arizona and that was the same deal. You know, we would play at midnight. You know, we were playing because we were just like, I got to be this fool. You know, he, he's not going to go back to the dorm being one up on me, you know, and, and we had our own basketballs. We'd go out there and play at any time. And then so getting to NAU, it was like I was going, this is so strange to me that we can't get into this place, which is unusual to begin with because we're playing in this dome where the backdrop is different than what it would be like in a regular arena. And we don't get to play that much on our own court. And I always thought that was unique. But then training tables, I didn't realize how important training tables were, you know, until I talked to her about it and not caring. It didn't matter because the rules weren't in place. Of course, when we were playing where you could only spend X amount of hours per week on the floor. Now it was like, you, I don't know, it was like 20 hours or something like that. Mm-hmm. Back then yeah, it was like, 20 hours. You, you, it was like, if your coaches were upset about the way you played the night before, they could keep you on that floor for the next three hours. I am sure you remember we went to, um, it, it might've been Weber state and, uh, we flew back and everyone was getting ready to go back to the dorm. And I, I think Raph was still our coach at the time. It's like, Hey, where are you going? You know, get, get in there, change and get on the floor. You know, it was like 10 o'clock at night or something like that. And I remember thinking this could be a long night. Cause I'm watching him walk around kicking snow drifts and, you know, just like just about to lose it. And, and now today they have these, you know, these rules in place where you can only, you know, there's only so many hours that you can spend with your players. But I always regretted the fact that, you know, we didn't, we didn't have more success as a team because I thought we had really good guys, you know, just like decent guys. Of course, every team's going to have, you know, a knucklehead or two, but 
but I thought it would be fun to have success with this group of guys because we had just just a lot of fun personalities and and um, and that was unfortunate. But so we leave college, go in our separate directions. You play in a couple summer leagues. You're with the Clippers for a summer. And what was your thinking in terms of can I play this game at another level, whether it was playing in the NBA or playing overseas? What, what were you what were you thinking when you left school? You know, I just I, I just wanted to keep playing basketball and thought I was good enough to play somewhere. Obviously, then there was no G League. There was the CBA. But I finished up and I was fortunate enough to get drafted by a team in Atlanta in the USBL. And it was a little bit different than the USBL was almost a summertime version of the CBA. So you had some really high-level players. So I get drafted by this team in Atlanta and end up making it. And after our third game, I end up getting traded to Palm Beach where there was a team. So I ended up going down to Palm Beach and playing with one of the great playground legends of all time from New York, a guy a guy called the Terminator, Ron Mathias, whose son actually played at Fresno State a few years ago and was a pretty good player. His name slips my mind. but So I went and played there for about uh, seven or eight games, and we ended up playing a team one night from Philadelphia that had Tim Legler, who's now an ESPN commentator, Dallas Comages, who was a great player at DePaul and in the NBA, a guy named Michael Anderson, was like the all-time leading scorer at Drexel. Just had a really, really good team. We play him that night. I'm changing clothes. Coach comes in and says, we just traded you to Philadelphia. So I said, well, what does that mean? He goes, well, they're going to drive you to the airport. I mean, to the hotel. You're going to get your stuff. And then you're going to ride with them from Palm Beach to Daytona. And you're going to play with them on the rest of this trip and then go back to Philadelphia. I said, okay. I said, uh, I said, who, who'd you trade me for? He said, uh, I don't know, but the guy gave me a case of beer for now and we'll figure out the rest <laughs> of the trade later. <laughs> so I ended up going to, I ended up going to Philadelphia with these guys for like a case of beer and probably, uh, uh, a chicken finger basket or something later, uh, when we played him again, but. But that was, I mean, unbelievable experience for me. I mean, John Lucas had his team in Miami. They had Richard Dumas, who played in the NBA, turned out to be a terrific player. They had Roy Tarpley, a lot of Grant Gondrasek, um, a lot of guys who were in, uh, in Coach Lucas's rehab facility. Long Island had Lloyd Daniels, Anthony Mason, and John Starks. Just a lot of really, really good players in the league. Every night you were playing against somebody, and, and it was a grind. You rode in vans. You know, the next year I got I played for them again in the summer after playing in the CBA for Cedar Rapids. Rick Barry was my coach. But I then got traded back to Atlanta because Philadelphia folded, and I played with Daryl Armstrong who was a longtime NBA player, Antonio Harvey, who played in the NBA for a long time. Just a lot of really good basketball players. And, and I was in heaven making four or $500 a week in the summers, you know, playing basketball and, you know, had the opportunity to play in training camp with Atlanta, with the Clippers, with the Sacramento Kings. 
And then I end up going overseas to Israel for a number of years and playing over there and, and just really, really enjoyed that. And, and like I said, had, you know, won a European championship, played with some great players over there. I mean, Tom, I was teammates with Tom Chambers, oh who was a gosh. great NBA player. Yeah. I remember Tom. Dominique Wilkins was playing in Greece. I mean, David Rivers was in Greece. I mean, names that, you know, are, you got to be a real basketball junkie to know some of them, but just some great, great players and just an unbelievable experience for me and, and just got to continue to play and, you know, run into coaching the NBA. I'm at summer league and I run into a, you know, a guy from Yugoslavia or a guy from Turkey who's now a big time coach over there. And I played against him and it was just, just, just a great, great time. And I was fortunate enough to, you know, be able to say I had a career playing professional basketball after college, which a lot of people don't, that I take great, great pride in and really, really enjoy. Did you like living in Israel? Because obviously, from a political point of view, you know, uh, the Middle East, a lot of turmoil. The interesting thing is, like, there are a lot of countries now that are obviously, you know, under duress that don't even exist anymore that were vacation spots. You know, like, I, I talked to a guy you know, that they used to go to Syria on vacation, you know, years ago. He's like, the beaches there are great, and, you know, but uh, what was it like living there? Lebanon used to be a resort town. I have never been to a better place than Israel. The people are unbelievable. The country itself is is beautiful. The people are terrific. They're warm. They're, they're open. Uh, they're welcoming. It's, it's funny because, you know, obviously now it's different, but, you know, all we had then was CNN, right? So the only time we'd ever see Israel on CNN was if there was a car bomb or, you know, a bus blew up. And, well, it was funny because I get there and they asked me where I was from and I said Los Angeles. And they asked me, have you ever been in a drive-by shooting? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and I said, well, why would you ask me? Well, that's what we see on CNN. Exactly. We see drive-bys. We see fires. We see rioting. And it just, it kind of opened my eyes right away. Like, it's, yes, there was turmoil in the Middle East. And, and yes, there's always for years and years been, you know, a quote-unquote war between the Israelis and the Palestinians or the Israelis and the Arabs. And I've had a chance to be around Israelis. I've had a chance to be around Arabs. And all the people of, that I've met are great people. There are jerks everywhere, but there are just great, great people there. It's just a great country. Living on the Mediterranean Sea was unbelievable. The, the level of basketball was very, very high. I absolutely loved it and probably could have lived there for the rest of my life. Yeah, no, I was here. When I worked at Cal Berkeley in the graduate business school there, we, we recruited in Israel every single year and I never got a chance to go we would divide up the globe literally and my coworkers would say okay I'm going to go here and and you're going to go there or whatever and I would always have North America and Canada and a couple of my coworkers would get to go to Israel and they would always just come back with just like they would just go Wendell it was unbelievable beaches are fantastic they'd basically be floating around the dead sea it's like mm -hmm. it just sounded just fantastic and um and then i got to see this i was watching this documentary i think amari stoudemire had signed a contract to play for a team in israel and he had moved his whole family there 
and really embraced the lifestyle and, and the culture. And, and, uh, and it was fun to see. And it's a place my sister and my, my mom, you know, have been there, but I haven't, uh, I haven't had a chance to go and I really want to go. Well, I, I think that's the thing. If you go anywhere, right. Is you're going somewhere. And I think sometimes as Americans, Obviously, we believe we live in the greatest country in the world, but with that comes a little bit of arrogance. Of course. But I noticed, I really tried, Rick Barry gave me some great advice before I went there. He said, you know, don't don't sit in the apartment and watch television all day. Obviously, it was a different guy. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, you know, laptops and all that. So, but, you know, you could get your handful of channels and sit around all day and spend money talking on the phone with people at home. He told me to go out and assimilate, become part of the country, become part of the town I was in. And I really, really tried to do that. And to this day, I have some some just great Israeli friends. And it is just, it was a great place that I really tried to assimilate and become a part of and not, you know, the only problem I would run into is while I was trying to learn Hebrew, my teammates wanted to learn English. So we end up speaking more English than Hebrew and, but just great, great people, very, just tough people, but just kind souls and tried to explain. There was, there's virtually no crime. You started to have a little bit more when you had the breaking up of Eastern European bloc countries and the Soviet Union. And because one thing they do in Israel, they have something that's called the law of return. And they welcome back Jews from anywhere and they'll sort of help you start your life there by giving you tax breaks and helping you get a house or an apartment, a car, furniture. So obviously all these Eastern European people who were displaced and have nowhere to go are now saying, you know, we're Jewish. So now you have the influx of some Eastern European organized crime and that comes into Israel a little bit. But before that, you could literally, Wendell, drop your wallet and somebody would chase you for a mile to give you your wallet back. I asked one of my teammates one time, I said, you know, you guys are, are very hot-blooded people and you're aggressive and, you know, they really didn't have like personal space like we do in the United States. So it would almost be like a cartoon. They would be nose to nose yelling and screaming at each other. And I said to my teammate, you know, you guys never fight. Like, you just yell and scream, but there's never a fight. He said, he goes, we live in a region of the world where everybody around us hates us and wants to kill us. We're the only, you know, non-Muslim country in this region of the world. And not that there aren't great Muslim people in the world, as we know, but he just said, we'd never hurt each other. We'd never, you know throw a punch at one another because we're all we have here. And it just, you know, it was just an eye-opening experience and, you know, just how they view family and, and welcoming people in and celebrating every day and every night because literally they didn't know if it was their last at certain times throughout history. It was just, it was just an unbelievable place to be. And, and the basketball was just, was unbelievable. And, I played on some great teams with some great players and it was just, it, it was, I could live there. I I like that you made a point to emphasize the fact that someone had asked you where you were from and you said that you were from Los Angeles and, and then they asked you about 
crime and have you ever been involved in a drive-by? Because I, I talk to young people a lot and they will ask me about, for instance, you live in a suburb of, of Chicago mm-hmm. and you see, if you looked at the news every night, you would think literally you get out of the airport, you better put your hands up because you're going to get shot if you come out of the airport, right? Because they're highlighting the fact that there are all these murders that are happening in one part, one section yep. of Chicago, the South side, right? South side and Where the West side. Yeah. And so, but Chicago is a great city. It's like one of the great American cities. Mm-hmm. And where I live, I, I remember when I was moving from, I was living in Pasadena before I moved up to, to the Bay area. And someone asked me, where are you moving to in the Bay area? And I'd found this place in Oakland and they were like, Oakland, are you crazy? Have you seen what's going on? Oakland's on fire. What are you talking about? <laughs> and and I was like, well, just like every city in America, they have certain sections that have their problems. But Oakland, for the most part, is a great city. There's a lot of cool neighborhoods in Oakland. And the same thing with, with Israel. I, I remember some of the, the, the people that were working in my office that were traveling there Someone would would say, "Oh my gosh, aren't you afraid that that you know, you're gonna be in your hotel and a bomb's gonna hit it or something?" And they're like, "Where we're going is no different than a lot of cities in America, where you're completely safe. It's absolutely beautiful, and of course, certain parts of that country or cities within that country they're gonna have their problems. But for the most part, it's fantastic." And people don't know that if you just sit in front of the TV, just like people have a, a, a perception about a certain type of culture or people that come from different ethnic groups. If you watch television and you're just basically playing off of certain stereotypes without actually going to experience these different cultures and ethnic groups for yourself, then you'll never know. And so uh, I'm glad that you you emphasized really what a great place Israel is and the experience that you had there and and the fact that you would actually live there you know that's a place that you could actually see yourself living I'm glad you said that because um yeah there are so many different people that they they get stuck on uh, and I'm not gonna say you know what 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 our current government is saying in terms of everything that you see is fake news we know that there's a lot of distorted news out there and you can't believe everything that you see on the internet that's why you have to go and experience it yourself but um, yeah, thanks for for sharing that. So let's let's talk about you're done playing, and now there's life truly after basketball, which a lot of guys have a hard time making the transition after you're done playing. And you know how that is. It's like it it comes to a hard stop, and the reality hits really quickly, and you kind of go, oh, now I have to actually go do something that I've not done in many, many years, which is actually get a real job, right? It's like, because you've been enjoying the camaraderie of having teammates and everybody's got a, the, the same goal, trying to win games, win championships, you know, the, the time that you spend on the bus, the time that you spend on the plane, all those are just great times, the times that you're just vegging out in the hotel. But then that all comes to an end. And so tell me what the thought process was in regards to what am I going to do now after my playing career is over? Well, it was actually funny. I still had I still had two years left on a three-year contract with the team I was playing for in Israel. And I got home in the summer after our season. Me and my wife were in California, and 
I was working out one day riding a stationary bike and I got a phone call from uh, a guy named Darrell Porter who had played at the University of Pittsburgh and was a great, great player there who I had gotten to know because my best friend growing up was a guy named Jason Matthews who played at Pitt. Um, so I would go and visit Jason for a couple weeks every summer and play with the guys at Pitt and I had gotten to be pretty good friends with him. The whole time I was playing in college and professionally, I was helping Dave Benezra coach the LA Rockfish, which I really, really enjoyed. And I was getting more, he was giving me more and more responsibility every year. And so Darrell called me and we're chatting, having small talk. And I said, congratulations. I heard you're the new coach, head coach at Duquesne University. And he said, yeah, I'm trying to get my bearings under me and put together a staff. That's actually why I'm calling you. And uh, I said, why? What's up? He said, well, would you be interested in joining my staff? And I said, well, you know, I appreciate it. I'm flattered and humbled that you would even consider me. But I'm still playing. And, you know, I don't have any interest in, you know, becoming a part-time assistant or a director of basketball operations right now. When I get done playing, you know, hopefully I can get right into on-floor coaching. He said, no, I'm, I'm offering you a job as, as one of my top two assistant coaches. And here I am, I'm 31 years old, and I've never been a college coach. And he's offering me a full-time coaching job at a school that had taken some lumps but was still in the Atlantic 10, which was a pretty good deal. So, you know, it's it's... If I was to go back and do it over again now and you asked me, I would have continued to play. But as you know, a season ends and, you know, maybe you're short a couple paychecks because sometimes you got to wait a little longer in Europe. And and I'm saying to myself, hey, I, I get I get a full-time coaching job in the Atlantic 10. I'm working for a guy I know well. This doesn't sound like a bad deal. So I talked to my wife and we thought about it. We had, we were start. We had started our family. We had our daughter and another one on the way, and I accepted. So I was, you know, pretty fortunate that I was able to to go right in running into a pretty good job. And I always knew I wanted to coach when I got done playing. And and again, if I could go back now, I probably stopped playing a little bit, you know, before I should have, considering I had a couple more years where whether I could play or not, they were still going to pay me. But I took the job, and Darrell had actually put together a very good staff, Kenya Hunter, who has gone on to have a, a very good college coaching career as an assistant coach at some of the top programs in the country was on his staff, and a guy named David Edelman, who was a terrific young coach. And so we went in there and tried to help him, and I was there for two years. And then I went to the University of Delaware, where I was for a couple of years with David Henderson, and we had some great success there. And then I was fortunate enough, Dave Lato hired me at DePaul. And I was at DePaul for three years, and we were very, very successful, had some very, very good players, and then went to Kent State as the associate head coach, where I was reunited with a college teammate of mine from, from Rhode Island named Jimmy Christian, who's now the head coach at Boston College. And I was there for two years, and and then actually left there and, and took a job with Frank Martin at Kansas State. And when I came back to Chicago to start moving, I was there. And Ben Gordon, I had known from my time at DePaul. He had played for Coach Lato at UConn and 
So he would come up to the office once in a while, and I got to know him when he was with the Bulls. And he offered me a job while I was home to become his full-time trainer. And it was way different then than it is now. You know, nobody was doing that. I had no idea what he meant. And long story short, he wanted a guy with him full-time and to set up workouts for him, you know, in the off-season, during the regular season, to basically go everywhere with him. And I thought it was a little bit out of the box, obviously, you know, working for Frank at Kansas State in the Big 12. You know, Bill Walker was there. Michael Beasley was coming. They were going to have a good team. I had so much respect for Frank and thought he was just going to be a terrific head coach, which he's proved beyond a doubt. But something about what Ben was talking about appealed to me. I wanted to eventually get into the NBA. There was always that stigma that coaching NBA players was different than college players, which I didn't believe. I thought all players wanted to be coached, and if they trusted you and felt like you could get them better, they were going to listen to you. But, you know, Ben was was a high-level NBA player, was coming off being sixth man of the year and runner-up for rookie of the year. Again, we had we had a home in Chicago still from my time at DePaul and and really went out on a on a limb and trusted Ben and took a chance and again talked to my wife and left college coaching to do that. And now there's a lot of guys who have trainers and obviously you see it all on social media and guys they work with, but you know, besides Tim Grover, who was, you know, famed for working with Michael Jordan. There weren't a lot of guys doing it, and nobody was doing it full-time as a career. You know, the the first time I got to the hotel on the road, I remember being in the lobby, and Kirk Heinrich had got off the elevator to go to dinner, and it's funny, I ended up working with him as well later, but he's just like, what are you doing here? And I was like, me and Ben are going to the gym. He's like, what do you mean you're going to the gym? We just flew in. I said, I know we're going to try to do this all year. He said, you guys are going to work out on the road all year. And I said, yeah. And he said, you're crazy. Both of you are out of your mind. But it worked. You know, we were sort of cut from the same cloth. And Ben is as, as high level a worker as anybody I've ever been around. I won't say the best worker because obviously there are a lot of great workers out there, but he's definitely in that small percentage at the top. and. And it's, and it worked out. You know, I think it's, you know, we sort of talked about it a little bit before, you know, you start seeing your teammates doing something and maybe you look and go, what is he doing? How's he getting the edge? You know, it translated. I started working with Kirk and Lou Aldang and Joe Kim Noah and Tyrus Thomas and, and then Taj Gibson and a number of guys on their team, Gennaro Pargo. And it sort of took off for as a career for me. And then I started you know, having guys, you know, for pre-draft and Mark Bartlestein at Priority Sports trusted me and gave me all his guys to work with, you know, from Brad Beal to Joe Ingles to Gordon Hayward and Paul George. And then I started working with WNBA players and Candace Parker and Cappy Pondexter, Christy Tolliver had the chance to go over to Europe and work with their teams in Russia and Spain. And and then I actually got an interview a couple of years later with Larry Drew when he was the head coach of the Atlanta Hawks. And 
he ended up hiring Nick Van Exel. But he said to me, if I ever get another opening, I'm going to come back and get you. And I thought he was being really nice. You know, you always hear that from people when you don't get a job or they pick somebody else. And, you know, he, he left Atlanta and he was named coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. And I shot him a text saying, congrats. I wish you the best of luck. And he replied back, where are you? And I said, I'm in Chicago. He said, can you drive down to Milwaukee tomorrow? I want to talk to you. It's about an hour drive. I drove down, talked to him. He had me work out John Henson, who was coming off his rookie year. Next thing I knew, he kept his word and offered me a job. And that was my start of my, my years in Milwaukee. Unfortunately, my year with him was one year, but then Jason Kidd came in who kept me and I was with him for three years and then was fortunate enough to go to Houston Rockets and work with Mike D'Antoni. And then this past year was in Brooklyn with uh, Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson, which was great as well. So it's uh, it's funny because if I probably go to Kansas State, I'm probably with Frank. Maybe I'm still with him at South Carolina. Maybe I'm, you know, coaching somewhere. Maybe I've gotten the opportunity to be a head coach. I don't know. Brad Underwood, who's the head coach at Illinois State, had great success at Stephen F. Austin was on that staff, and but it's, you know, I made that decision, and it worked out, and I ended up in the NBA. But it's funny how things happen, because if I don't go up to a gym in Chicago to actually talk to a couple people I knew who were in town, I don't see Ben, and I'm not working him out, and he's not offering me a job. So it's it's funny. It's funny how the ball bounces and takes you different places and, and gives you the opportunity to have different experiences. Did you, while working in the NBA and, and, and you'd already worked with some players and doing, you know, workouts outside of, outside of their team structure. So when you get to the league, it's not like you hadn't been around guys in the league and you'd played against guys that were in the league. So that, that wasn't anything that was new to you. But what about the NBA was so just vastly different besides the, of course, the, the amount of money that's involved in terms of the, the, the lifestyle of, of the players and, and the technology now that you're using to scout teams and you have advanced scouts and you have so many resources that go into getting teams and players prepared for the next game and then the next game because they come around so quickly was was that was that like just something that was so so different than what college was that that it made you kind of think for a second whoa this is this is really a machine here what what was that like when when you first experienced that first season well the the first thing is that you realize is the players are much much better than college players it's it's not even close i mean they're just they're the they're the best in the world for a reason. They're just bigger, faster, stronger, more skilled, better understanding, higher IQ. It's just a totally different game, you know, from the NBA from college. And the things that these guys can do and the rate of, of intelligence they have and their ability to pick things up and do them so much quicker than anybody else at any other level is unreal. And then, I mean, you talk about technology and stuff like that. I mean, I was doing deck-to-deck splicing of VHS tapes in college when I was putting together, you know, scout clips or breakdowns for the players. 
I mean, you know, everything. There's NBA is big business. These teams are big business from, you know, the analytics staff, which are breaking. There's nothing that if you want it from a statistical analysis standpoint that you can't get. If I want to know what's the difference between James Harden on Wednesday nights versus Tuesday nights in West Coast cities versus East Coast cities, they can have that information to me in minutes. You know, it's they have access to everything. The the people they have working for them are so smart and so advanced. Obviously, analytics is such a huge thing now, and the game has changed so much with, you know, space and pace and, you know, threes and layups and free throws and nobody wanting to shoot mid-range shots. It's just such an analytical game. I mean, we saw it with, you know, that great movie that came from a great book, Moneyball. It's translated now from baseball to basketball to I have no idea what they're doing in football, but I know it's in soccer. But there's just, there's so much, you know, sports performance, you know, the loads they want guys to to reach and play and, you know, sleep doctors and rest. And I mean, they're just, it's big business and they're leaving no stone unturned. The best players take great care of their bodies. They invest. I mean, I think LeBron said it. He invests close to a million dollars a year into his body. Yeah, people were astonished by that. And I was going, well, think about it. That's his business. Why Why is that? He's making hundreds of millions of dollars. Why wouldn't he spend a million dollars to fine-tune himself? Yeah. If he can spend a million dollars to get himself one more year at $30 million, that's a pretty sound investment. Of course. Of course. But it's, you know, the best players all have routines. You know, it was great. I tell people all the time, it was great to be around Giannis Adetokounmpo at the beginning of his career to see him sort of evolve. And then one thing that really, and he's now one of the best players in the league and is con- going to continue to get better because his The shot's going to get better first of all (laughs) his thirst and his desire to improve as a player is is just insatiable he's just an ultimate gym rat and and thirst for knowledge and the amount of time he spends watching film is unbelievable but to be able to go to houston and then be around james harden an established superstar and see how he goes about his day in his business, trying to maintain that MVP level. I tell people all the time, you know, this guy plays 39, 40 minutes a game. Every night he gets you 30. Every night he gets you 10 assists. Every night he's at the line 10, 11 times. His body takes a beating. And he's taking the biggest shot at the biggest time and winning games and And every day, this guy is back in the gym, in the weight room, doing his his routine, up on the court, doing his shooting routine, in the training room, doing his routine. I mean, every single day, I mean, it's six, eight, ten hours of him perfecting his craft and taking care of his body so he's ready to go the next night. Just the respect that I gained for him is 
it's easy for me to see, having been around him, why he's the player he is at the level he is. And I know the Westbrooks and the Currys and Durants and the LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Giannis Adetokounmpo, there's no difference. They're doing it too. And the teams just have, you know, from the chefs to the masseuses to the hyperbaric chambers to the ice baths to the ice tubs to the hot tubs to everything they need is there. If they want to be great, if the talent is there for them to be great and they want to be great, these teams have everything to help them become the players they want to be. But the big thing is they all say they want to do it, but are they going to do it? Are they going to put the time in? to reach where they say they want to go. Well, there's so many, to, to have, the, there are so many, sorry to interrupt, but there's so many guys that the, the money is so big now. Yeah. And I, and I feel like the, the players have evolved a lot. The, the, the NBA player today is so different from 20 years ago where guys didn't see themselves as a brand 20 years ago. Now they see themselves as a brand mm-hmm. and they're trying to take care of their money because there's so many guys that came before them that have the horror stories of, of running through their money because they just assumed it wasn't going to ever go away. And so now when you talk, I, I, I used to work with Jared Bayless's um, mom. We worked at the same school. And I remember when he was just this little punk kid coming in and he was like, I'm going to be in the NBA. I'm going to be in the NBA. I was like, yeah, right. Whatever, you know, and then he makes it to the NBA and he has this mindset of like, it's, you know, he knows he knew from a, a young age, this is a business. Now he had a unique situation that his mom was an educator and his dad, I think is like, is like a anesthesiologist or something like that. He's, he's, you know, he's come around, he's grown up around people that have some sense, but a lot of guys, I'm just really impressed with when I listen to them and the things that they have going on outside of basketball. It's so different than when you heard guys years ago that were playing in the NBA and they were talking about, I'm going to open a club over here and, you know, at, uh, at a pool hall here and, and this. And it's just different, right? It's just, just well, a different. I, I remember is I was working with a player on the Chicago Bulls and I won't say his name, but just a great guy and a really good player. But, you know, he was unrecruited out of high school, went to a school as a walk-on, a scholarship opened, he got a scholarship, he redshirted, grew four inches, played the next year, and was a lottery pick. And literally told me I was so unequipped to be an NBA player and live an NBA lifestyle, I had no idea what to do. He said, I go to Ruth Chris and wanted to get a steak. I didn't, I didn't know there were different kinds of steaks. I didn't know how to order. I didn't know why there were two forks on the table. I didn't know why the waiter was coming over and taking this plate and giving me a new, he goes, I wasn't equipped. And, you know, and that was probably just maybe eight years ago, eight or nine years ago. And yeah, things are changing. All problems haven't been solved, but no, these guys are exposed to so much more when they're young. And I think one of the great things is too, is that Chris Paul and Steph Curry and LeBron James, and you know, the list goes on. They have these camps in the summertime. So they're they invite the best college players and they bring them in as counselors and they spend time with them. And 
and they develop relationships with them. Like Donovan Mitchell talks about all the time, he's been texting back and forth with Chris Paul for two years. You know, Chris Paul has basically treated him like a little brother. And it, so these guys are so far ahead of the curve, as you said. So now they get money and, you know, you're, you're still probably going to spend the majority of your rookie contract because it's not, you know, it's not as much as people think it is. And, and the people that you want to take care of right away, you know, family and friends, and it goes very, very fast. But yeah, they do. A lot of the players do have, I agree with you, a much better sense. They're much more mature. They're much more polished, you know, and it's, and it is good to see, but it's, you know, I think we're just scratching the surface. I had a chance to coach Jared Bayless. It's funny you brought him up and Kim Bayless was always looking for the next thing he could do to prepare himself for down the road. You know, the next connection. We had an ownership change in Milwaukee when he was there and, you know, he made a point to develop a relationship with the, the new owners because they were young and they were hedge fund guys and, that interest him and he spent a summer in New York interning at one of the companies and learning. And there's more and more guys like that who, as you said, are looking past basketball and looking, how can I make money while I'm playing beside just what my contract is paying me? And it's great to see. And it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's guys passing it down. And I, and I think that's how, whether it's basketball or not basketball, you know, you, you do something to educate the youth, it's going to make the future better and brighter. And if we can all sort of do that, not just basketball, you know, grab a young person and teach a young person, then hopefully, you know, he teaches the next young person, makes the world a better place to be. Right. Because of, of where I live, we, we get inundated with, with the Warriors and everything that's going on with the Golden State Warriors. And I'm always impressed with, heck, I was watching CNBC the other day and Andre Godalo's on there talking about his investment portfolio and the different company that he's, he's interested in. And, and, uh, of course, KD is, is doing a lot in Silicon Valley and, and Steph's got a gaming company and, and he's doing all these different things. And, and these guys are also figuring out how to give back as well. You know, it's not just about consumption, but, but also being, upstanding citizens of the community and so that's really fun to see it's really good to see they these guys are really rarely in the newspaper making headlines for the wrong things they're responsible individuals and and uh and they're just a good group everyone talks about how how good of a team this Golden state warrior team is but when you look at the not only the coaching staff that they have there but the support personnel they just have a really good group of people that like each other and it's fun to watch when I watch different once again I, I look at different teams different games and I and I pay attention to who's doing what on the bench and and who's paying attention in the huddle and and, and who's not and and how coaches interact with with their players and and I always think it's fun to watch the coaches if the game is really close to see who's got the clipboard and is giving you something that looks like a shot at winning the game and which coaches are just like the rah-rah coaches. And I'm not going to say names, but there's some coaches where I go, uh, I don't think this is going to work out for them. <laughs> you know. And then <laughs> others where I go, wow, everyone is dialed in. They're listening to this coach and he looks like he has a plan. And so it's fun to, 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 to see that. But watching this warrior team here 
And people forget this team was terrible for many years. Terrible. You you basically looked at they'll look at the schedule and the team would go, Okay, we gotta go we have to go because they're on a schedule. We have to go to Golden State. Sacramento had that stretch where they were really good, so you had to you had to bring it. But for the most part, it was like there was nothing going on here. And now everyone is spoiled and, and, and I run into people and I know they're passionate fans here, but I'm like, I know for a fact you weren't watching for a good ten years. When they had nothing going on, you know, so don't give me this. Oh, I've always been a Warrior fan because I I refuse to believe that. But um, it's fun to watch when when you're preparing for a team like Golden State. Obviously, you you were coaching with Houston, so that was a team that people had to worry about and spend a lot of time prepping for. But uh, if you were coming into Oracle and knowing the firepower that that team is putting out there on the floor. What was that game planning like? Was there like, look, we've got to pick our poison and, and someone's going to kill us. Someone's going to have a good a good game against us, but we can't let everybody go off. Or was it just like, look, we can stop this team if we just you know, have the perfect game. What kind of prep was that like coming into Oracle for, as a visiting team? Well, you're not stopping. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> but I think, you know, whether, whether it be Houston or Milwaukee or, you know, Brooklyn, the one consistent theme, if you want to try to beat them, you have to do your best to take away the three. Because when you talk about Golden State's identity, their ability to hit threes, especially in Oracle, that building gets so loud and they get so much momentum, even more than a dunk. So you try and make it difficult on them. You try to make them play. You know, Jeff Bizdelic, who was our defensive coordinator in Houston, who just the other day actually retired, who's one of the great defensive minds I've ever been around, just a terrific coach, always talked about, you know, long twos inside the three, outside the paint and that they couldn't make enough twos to beat us. It sounds good in theory, but their greatness shows when they're able to get threes or when they do get one, they, you know, bang a big one. You know, you think you got Steph in check, and all of a sudden he goes for 11 points in two and a half minutes, and now he's rolling and the building's going crazy and it's rocking and you can't hear yourself. But... You know, the hardest thing to do is to play and scout a team that doesn't run a lot of plays, and they don't. They just, they move the ball, they move bodies, the ball doesn't stick, they have an unselfish team, they're always trying to play, you know, good to great shot, they'll pass up a good one for a great one, they celebrate the next guy's make as much as they celebrate their own makes. And that's contagious. And they never lose, you see, they never lose faith in each other. So they move the ball, the ball's popping around, and Steph has an open one. He swings it to Katie for a better one. Katie misses. You never see body language. Oh, man, I should have shot it. I would have made it. They just get to the next play, and, and they have so many weapons, but, you know, with three, maybe four future Hall of Famers, um, and now DeMarcus Cousins, maybe five. They're a very, very tough out. They have so many weapons, and 
you know, you just got to sort of hope the stars are in alignment and, and the shots that Clay usually makes, he misses. And, and the shots that Steph usually makes, he misses. I was fortunate enough to be on the winning side when I was in Milwaukee when they were 25 and 0. We got them on the, the back end of a back to back in Milwaukee. I think they got into Milwaukee about 3 a.m. I think it was about 10 below. We were jacked up. Our fans thought we were playing for the world championship. The Bradley Center was louder than I've ever heard it. And Jay Kidd and, and the staff put together a great game plan, and, and we knocked them off. But you almost got to be perfect. You know, the interesting thing now is, you know, what's their carrot now? What are they playing for? Are they playing to get DeMarcus a championship? Are they, you know, playing to cement their legacy as one of the great teams of all time? Or are they at some point during the year going to just go, hey, we've won enough, I'm tired, because it is an absolute grind, the NBA season. And then, you know, the biggest factor, do they stay healthy? Steve Kerr's done an unbelievable job. It's, it's been the perfect storm. They got the perfect coach for the perfect players in the perfect place with the perfect style of play, and they're just, they are fun to watch. They're great to play against and compete against, and, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, and and you hit it right on the head when you think about someone like a Steve Kerr who's been through that as a player, played a lot of seasons, won multiple championships as a player, as a coach. You couldn't think of a better person. And just think of how close, you talk about it's funny how the ball bounces, he almost became the New York Knicks head coach, right? He was about to take that job. And then right at the, the, kind of the 23rd hour, the, the, the Warrior situation opened up and, and the rest is history. But yeah, when you think about it, and, and since, since that, that time when he flirted with that job, I think they've had what, two or three different coaching changes since then. And, and he's, he's just re-upped here at Golden State. So. It's it's really just funny how how things work out, and a lot of people that think that they could they could coach that team. You always hear people say, "Gosh, I could coach that team. Give me a break." It's like no, when you have that those many personalities, that many personalities who could go and be the man on any other team, and you have to figure out how to make that all work together. It's more complicated than it looks, and and people really have no idea how fortunate. They have in terms of someone like Steve Steve Kerr, and of course a general manager too that also cares, right? Yeah, I mean they're they're first class from the top to the bottom, and you can't win in the NBA, and I don't think you can win in professional sports unless you have great ownership that gets it, and then you know down to your general manager, to your coach, everybody really has to be on the same page. You know they've done a great job through the draft; they get Draymond Green in the second round. I think it, you know. Play slipped. You know, they stuck with Steph. They've made some great acquisitions. They've developed some good young players. You know, it's, it's, they've done a great job. They're, they're a model franchise right now. And they've probably taken a little bit of the torch from San Antonio, who was always sort of regarded as the top franchise and the model organization. And, and they still are great in their own right. They just, when you lose Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, and Tony Parker, uh, it's going to change a little bit. So, you know, Golden State's got it figured out. They're moving into that new building there in a year or so, and we'll see how that goes for them. But, you know, it's it'll be interesting. It's, you know, Pat Riley had a great, great statement. He said, sometimes you fall into the disease of me. The culture of me. Yeah, the yeah. culture of me. And, 
You know, do all these guys keep taking less money? You know, is Clay going to take less money? You know, is K- is KD going to come back in a year? But hey, let's uh let's celebrate them for what they are now, and you know, continue to enjoy the way they play. I just hope I can get some wins. Continue to steal a win every once in a while <laughs> when I'm on a bench. When I'm on the opposite opposite bench, right? Well, you can you can have that. I remember listening to I was uh, listening to another podcast that Steve Kerr happened to be on, and and he was talking about when he played on those great Bulls teams and. And he's, he was talking about, gosh, the season is so long and there's always that one day in or that one night in February where it's winter, dead of winter, and you're playing against a team that has no business being on the floor with you. But you're kind of like, man, we're coming off of a, a, a back-to-back or it's the second of a back-to-back and you got into a place late and you're you're not sleeping well or whatever. And that team, that's their championship game. Like you said, when you guys were in Milwaukee, that's their championship game. So they're bringing everything. And you're kind of like, it's just another game. And he was telling this great story of how when Vancouver still had a franchise, they were up there playing. And, and uh, I can't remember who the guard was, someone that played at UCLA and was playing uh, with Vancouver. And he was talking a lot of shit to Michael Jordan. And... They were like on the verge of losing that game because they were like, who cares? We're in Vancouver. We're, we're going to win 70 games. <laughs> who cares? And uh, and I can't remember who it was. It was someone that, that shouldn't be talking anything. He's fortunate that he was in the league. And he said it was the strangest thing. Like Jordan just basically was like, we're not losing this game because this punk is talking all the smack. And, and, and he was like, it was weird. Jordan just did his Jordan thing, Superman cape on, and, and, and they pulled out that win. But... Most of the time, it's easy to see why a team will just be like, let's just shock this. Let's just get out of here because, you know, we're tired and, and it's just been a long grind. It's winter and the holidays are coming up, whatever it is. And and you know how it is in college. College felt like a grind at times where you're just like, man, this is like another game. We're going to another to another airport. And so you, you, you multiply that by two and it's just like. I, I, I couldn't even imagine it. It just it just seems like it's a lot. And, and for the Warriors to do it, to play so deep in the year, and like you said, they've been fortunate. They haven't had anything catastrophic in terms of injuries. Their guys have basically, the year that they lost, when uh, they lost to Cleveland and Draymond got the second technical or whatever it was, that, that was a year where they should have won, but... Draymond missed that game five or whatever it was, and, and and Cleveland ended up winning the series. But they've been fortunate; they haven't had any serious injuries. And just like look at Houston, Houston, I don't I don't care what anybody says, Houston was going to beat them. I think Houston, if Chris Paul was healthy, they were punching them in the neck, and they had no idea what to do or how to respond to that. And I'm going, well, look at this team; they've been playing at a high level for multiple years. This this Houston team is perfectly primed to beat them, and then Chris Paul gets hurt. And that was the series, basically. Yep. Yeah. So becomes one of the great what ifs, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it is. Hey, let me ask you real quick, and then I'm going to let you go because I don't want to. You've been fantastic, and this has been a lot of fun to to visit so many different areas in the world of basketball. But with all the stuff that was going on, I don't know how much you pay attention to the college game because you're an NBA level coach, but. When all this stuff that was going on in terms of the FBI investigating programs and ultimately Rick Pitino was the one that paid dearly with the loss of his job. And of course, our old athletic director, Tom Jurich, also loses his job. 
from afar, were you were you watching all that was happening in regards to what these programs were were basically being accused of doing, and and many of them proven that they were doing some things with assistant coaches breaking some NCAA rules and. You know, from afar, were you watching that and going, well, of course this is happening. And, and real quick, before I let you answer, when we had Josh Pastner on, he was saying, look, you got to understand, there's just a really small percentage of programs that are doing that. Everybody else is doing it the right way. It's just a very small percentage. And I remember sitting in an office at Arizona State University when Rob Evans and Tony Benford was were, were running the program there. And Tony played a, a voicemail for... Actually, it was Osaro and I were sitting in his office and he was like, listen to this. And he was playing a voicemail of a guy who I won't name the name, but it was a player that they were trying to recruit. And his AAU coach was like, you can get him, but this is what it's going to cost. And he <laughs> he put that on the voicemail. And I went, you've got to be kidding me. Are you serious? Are they really that blatant out with it? And he was like, I'm not kidding. We get calls like that all the time. Guys that we're going after in a big way and they have a, a handler or someone that's working with the family. They're putting the number out there saying this is what it's going to cost. So when all this stuff was going down with Louisville and, and, and Auburn and everybody else, were you were you a little bit surprised, a lot of surprised? Were you like surprised that Rick Pitino got himself in that? What, what was your thinking on that? Well, I think the surprising thing for everybody was when you heard FBI. Yeah, right. When it became... It wasn't the NCAA. It wasn't just sanctions. It wasn't just putting somebody on probation. It was the FBI, and they're talking about people going to jail, and they're pulling up on these college campuses, and they're taking these assistant coaches away in handcuffs. You know, except for the gambling in 1951, and all the, the point shaving and the scandals that took place at CCNY and, you know, Connie Hawkins and Roger Brown and people like that, this was unprecedented. Well, we did have a problem at Arizona State, too, with Headache Smith. Well, you had the thing with Stephen Smith, right. But few and far between, and you have a, a huge, you know, number of coaches, you know, I say more than two is huge, being arrested turning themselves into the FBI, I think everybody was paying attention and everybody was sort of waiting who's going to be next. I think that's been the biggest surprise is that from that initial wave, there really hasn't been much more. Exactly. And that's what Pastner was saying. Coach Pastner was saying the same thing. He's like, well, look, what what happened? There were just a few and, and truly, and Josh, you, you could disagree or agree, but I still think there are a lot of assistant coaches that are taking the fall for their head coach and the head coach is telling them, hey, listen, I'll take care of you. We end up at a different spot. I'm going to bring you along. And then they end up at a different spot and they don't bring them along. They go, hey, you know what? My my administration won't let me bring you because of this and that. And so they go on to sell cars or something. So I still believe that these coaches, these head coaches know what's happening. They're just acting like they don't. I think there's, look, there's a lot of dealing going on. Yeah. I don't care what anybody says. There's a lot. There's too many people involved with these players. Too much money. Where, where deals aren't going on, things aren't being negotiated. Is it coming directly from the coaches? Is it coming directly from the shoe companies? 
Do the players even know what's going on? Are they even getting a piece of the pie? You know, I don't know. But to say, you know, it was only the schools that got caught, I probably disagree with Coach Passner on that. I do agree with him that it's not the wild, wild west and everybody's cheating. But the problem is, are the voicemails like you were alluding to. There's a lot of that going on, and I think then you have to make a decision. Is it worth it to make this deal to get this player who maybe I wouldn't get, who's going to get me a five-year extension that'll take care of my family for another generation that maybe gets the assistant coach a job as a head coach somewhere? It's big money business. Is it completely broken? No. Does it need to be fixed? Yes. You know, I love listening to Jay Billis when he talks about the subject. I think he has some just great points. He does, definitely. Whether it's basketball or football or, you know, those are the two main sports that you hear about where stuff's going on. The NCAA has some work to do. They really do because the penalties aren't consistent across the board. I still don't know. Do I think stuff was going on at Louisville? I don't know. I wasn't there. But I still don't think they've ever come out with concrete proof of stuff against Coach Patino. You know, maybe they... Maybe you can't pull the wool over somebody's eyes forever, but, you know, it's you still need concrete proof to penalize people in basketball or anything else. And everybody's just going around and penalizing people because they think or your reputation says that's not fair. But the NCAA is the leader of all of this. You know, it doesn't say, you know, National National Association of North Carolina, National Association of Kentucky. You know, it's the NCAA, and, and they've got to get their house in order. And I know they've sort of tried with this Rice Commission. Which was, I don't think, very effective, but... Right. But it's, you know, shoe companies are in there, and they're not going anywhere. And AAU isn't going anywhere. And people around the players isn't going anywhere. And we're naive, and they're naive to think that it is. They're naive to think, well, we're going to put it into USA Basketball's hands and let them run camps across the country, and they'll pick the players, and they'll govern it. Well, everybody's forgetting USA Basketball's biggest sponsor is Nike. So are now only Nike-affiliated players getting invites? You know, there's there's so many tentacles that reach out and and are attached, and and, and you're not going to – there's a lot of work to be done, and it's not going to be done quickly. That's for sure. And and we're all fooling ourselves if it is, and – it's just, it's been around, it's been around for decades, and it ain't going nowhere, in my opinion. 
Yeah, and I and I agree with you. And some of we could literally do a, a podcast of some of the shenanigans that I learned about just talking from different coaches that have relationships with different AAU teams. And I, I was talking to a coach the other day about we were talking about debit cards and these these cards that are given to players and there's no way to trace who's giving the money to the players because they're getting them on these debit cards and it's just unbelievable the cash flow that's going back and forth and you hit it right on the head when you said in many cases the players don't even know what's happening they're they're being auctioned off and they have no idea that mom and dad's on the phone talking to joe's shoe company about their kid potentially going to this Nike sponsored school or Adidas sponsored school or whatever, because they're just out there playing and the, and the parents are negotiating this stuff and the kids have no idea. I really believe when the kid at Louisville said, I didn't know, you know, that, that someone was, was potentially going to get paid a hundred thousand dollars for me to go to school here. He actually seemed sincere when he said it, I was going, wow, I actually believe this kid when he's saying that, you know, but it's really a big business. Let's talk about just real quick. You you have a daughter plays basketball at a high level. She is at James Madison University. She's going to be sitting out there as a transfer coming from Syracuse. The women's game, and we talk about the, the we were talking about the NBA because you're an NBA coach, but the WNBA still having a difficult time trying to get people to 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 take interest in the league and they play at a high level. They, it's fun to watch those games. You've worked with some of those players, and so you know what their ability is. What do you think it's going to take for the American public? Because I hear all these these different women that are leaving their WNBA jobs after their season is over. They're heading to Russia. They're going to Turkey. They're going to France and making a lot of money. And the game is is really popular in those places. But for for whatever reason, the same guys that have girls playing basketball in AAU leagues or whatever, they're not taking their daughters to these games in the WNBA. I, I still can't figure out why it's so difficult for this league to get a foothold in the consciousness of the American public. Whoa, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's still, you know, I heard, I heard the commissioner of the WNBA talking about it the other day, and she, she makes a good point. It is still a young league, really. And if you compare it to where the NBA was after the same number of years, there's not that big of a difference. But we are in a time of, as you were talking about, branding. And I think the WNBA is still trying to figure out who to market their league to. They have tried a number of different things. Obviously, you know, the players are terrific. And if you sit down and watch a WNBA game, it is high, high level basketball. These women play the right way. The coaches are terrific. There's not the above the rim stuff you see in an NBA game. You know, I, I think that how the NBA is changing with, you know, the three-point line and analytics and some of that can go to the WNBA playing, you know, faster and freer, shooting more threes. But it's, it's a great product. They just have to figure out, can you do it for four months in the summer? 
or are there just, you know, are there, do people want to go sit in an arena in the summer or do you just want to go in the winter and play side by side with the NBA? It's something to think about, but it's, you know, having been to all these, you know, the Nike EYBL circuit with my daughter and, you know, watching her play last year at Syracuse in the ACC and going down and watching her team this year at James Madison play. There are so many young women and girls who can really, really play. There are more and more players every year. That will only make the product better. They're getting bigger. They're getting stronger. They're getting more athletic. More girls are dunking, and even at young ages. You know, I think the more girls that continue to play, the game gets better, the product gets better, and, you know, I'm a proponent. I, I hope every day it doesn't go anywhere. I think these women deserve a great league to play in here in the United States, and the women in foreign countries deserve to be able to come here and and try to play at the highest level because that's what the WNBA is. But, you know, it's it irks me when I hear people say, how do you sit there and watch one of their games? These are the same. They say that, but it's the same people who sit down, put an NBA game on TV. They're not watching that game either. They just have it on in the background. You know, they're on their phones. They're this. Everything's immediate gratification they're not watching all of golden state's games they're going to instagram and watching let me just watch the 10 10 shots steph made and then they watch sports center and say they watch the game so to me most of those people aren't watching the games anyway but but it's nice to see all the nba players come out and support the WNBA players at the games i love that you know i think i love that hey if if, if they can sit there and watch and appreciate it They've got a better eye for high-level players than anybody. You know, more people should. But, you know, I'm a proponent for it. Obviously, I have, as you said, I have a daughter who plays high-level basketball. I want to support her in the game she plays. But I was watching it and enjoying it way before she was around. So it's only gotten better, and I think it will continue to get better. And that's my thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's my thing, too. Once again, I, I'm biased because I had a sister that played at a high level and, and, uh, and I, and I appreciated her ability and skill. And I loved watching Cheryl Miller play as a cosplayer. And I thought, wow, she's awesome. And I got a chance to, to meet Nancy Lieberman and, and saw her play. And when she was still playing and she, she played in Phoenix when, when that franchise started and, and, uh, and I always just thought they were tremendous players. And so I want that league to, to stick. I lied just now when I said I was going to wrap that. I had one more thing I wanted to ask you about the ball family. I, I have a lot of people on our, on our Instagram. They're always asking me questions about, about the balls, Lamello, Lamello, and of course, Lonzo and, and, um, specifically what, what I think about what their dad has done in terms of, uh, you know, he pulled a kid out of UCLA, which I thought, excuse me, he, he pulled him out of UCLA. And I don't know if that if he was going to be a good player there at UCLA. Who I feel bad for is the youngest ball, because now that guy's like six seven or something like that, and it would have been perfect for him to finish high school, go to UCLA, and then who knows what happens after that. But I have a lot of young kids, young players are asking me all the time, "What do you think about the balls and and their dad?" And 
And do you do you have an opinion about about the way he's kind of done it with his kids? Not 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 the way that he is as a father. Obviously, he loves his kids and he will do anything for them. But but the way that their careers kind of turned, Lonzo is doing what he's supposed to do. He's in the NBA. He's going to be a terrific player. But what what's going on with his family? You know, I as you said, it's it's not my right to to judge what any other parent does with his kids. Obviously, you know. He's done a few things right because he's got three very, very talented sons who are playing at a very, very high level. But I, I do feel I'm a, I'm a big Lonzo Ball fan. I still think Lonzo is going to be a terrific player. And, you know, it, it bothers me a little bit when you write guys off at 20 years old. I'm so glad I didn't get written off at 20, but. Leangelo goes to UCLA and he makes a mistake with a couple of his teammates in China. He, I wish he would have just taken his punishment, gone along, played his career out at UCLA, had the chance to, you know, enjoy being a college student at a great institution, enjoy being a college basketball player, playing on the highest level of college basketball, being able to compete just for the simple reason, so at 40 years old, he's got a chance to tell his kids what it was like, God willing. And then I do agree with you. I, I feel very, very bad for the youngest one. And I'll take basketball out of the equation. He doesn't get to go to a prom. He doesn't get to graduate from high school and walk across the stage. He doesn't get a chance to do silly, dumb things with his high school classmates. He doesn't get a chance to just take a natural step of evolution and be a high school kid basketball he's a very very talented player obviously would he have been one of the better players in the country in high school sure he probably still is but now now he's a circus act and that and i don't think that was fair to him the one thing that i will give these three three young men they're obviously very very respectful young people because they never utter a word bad about their parents, about their dad. They basically do what they're told to do. You even hear, you know, Lonzo talking about, hey, that's my dad. That's not me. My dad's a great dad. I have nothing bad to say about my dad. You've seen a lot less with families and they just go awry. But it's hard for me to, to understand why you would pull a young person out of high school after his sophomore year and not let him, he's only going to succeed there. He's a great high school player. He was going to be fine. Just let him play. Just let him go to high school. Let him, let him get to do what Lonzo got to do. Let him get to do what Leangelo got to do. Don't take that from him. He deserved that. And that's, that, that's my only problem is I just feel bad for him because he's not going to, he's not going to get to tell the stories to God willing his kids or his wife or, you know, his friends later in life about high school. You know, it's so I just feel bad for him from that standpoint. If he's good enough to be an NBA player, he'll be an NBA player. He'll be an NBA. It, you yeah, know, if you're definitely. if you're good enough, you're gonna make it. He's taken obviously a different path. I just I just wish he would have got to experience high school the way his brothers did. Exactly. Yeah. I felt bad about that. And, and I, I, I watch some of the things that they post online and, and I go, man, this, 
both those guys should be, well, the, the youngest one would have been, I guess, what, a senior this year in, in high school. And I just wanted to see them both at UCLA to get that chance to, to do what, what their older brother Lonzo had done. And, and it, just that whole experience, whether they make it to the NBA or not, they were going to go to UCLA. One of them did. And, and then, you know, obviously was pulled out, but I, I just think that um, they're really interesting family. And I, and I really hope that things work out to their benefit and, and they continue to play basketball and not get trapped by all the other things, all the other distractions, you know, and they, they continue to work on their game. But Josh, this has been tremendous. I really appreciate you coming on, on this podcast, the division one basketball.com podcast. And, and it's like, it's so crazy how time flies by. And you think about just the journey and everything that we were just talking about with the ball family is like, that's that stuff that, you you can't replicate right it's like 30 years goes by and you go man that was you know some of the some of the best times of my life was uh when i was 20 21 years old running around with our teammates in in college and uh and so it's fun to to kind of go back and 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 be able to revisit that but uh, i remember uh, mike d'antoni was talking about winning an italian championship when he was coaching and he had bob mcadoo on his team and a few other really good players. And, and he was just like, to this day, that was like one of the best times of his life. And I'm sure if he ends up winning an NBA championship, he's going to go, this is really great. But they weren't making NBA money over there. They were making okay money, but they really enjoyed the basketball and they enjoyed the, the lifestyle and, and being around each other. And, and I always appreciate that about team sports. And, and we didn't have a lot of success playing at NEU as, as a team, but we still had fun and we enjoyed being students and, and, and college athletes and, and maintaining the relationships that, that we formed 30 years ago is, is, is really cool. And, and maybe in, in another 20 years, when, when we're really old, <laughs> we <can> go, remember, <laughs> remember when. But uh, Josh, thanks so much. People don't, don't realize that you were a super talented player and, and you knew the game and understood the game and it's not a coincidence that you became a teacher of the game because uh, you you saw the game in a way that a lot of people only hope to see it, and uh, and so it's it's really great to have you reflect on on your experiences as an NBA coach and 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 as a college coach and as a professional player and the journey that you took to get to where you're at today. And uh, it's it's once again no coincidence that you've been a success at every level that you've played at and coached at and and uh, and it's gonna be continued success going forward. And as a friend and as a fan, I, I certainly wish you luck going forward and, and we're gonna have you back on the on the podcast again. That'd be great. In a, in the not too distant future. But thanks thanks for, for joining and Josh Oppenheimer tremendous tremendous uh conversation today so good luck going forward and and we'll catch up soon down the road great thank you i appreciate you thinking of me and having me on it was great awesome thank you josh you got it all right so that was josh oppenheimer who is a former teammate of mine at northern arizona university and just a really good good person really great basketball mind and it was fun to have him on the podcast today i think our conversation was was over two hours and it didn't feel like it it felt like it was 20 minutes and i still had a lot of things that we could have talked about he's going to be a future guest again on this podcast because there's so much knowledge that he brings to the table and i think a lot of you players out there that are going to get a chance to listen to this episode with josh oppenheimer will appreciate everything that uh, he has to say about the game and 
and where he's been and where basketball has taken him and so i definitely i'm going to have him back on on the podcast and so you can take some more nuggets of information from josh so thanks for everyone who tuned in and came on to the division1basketball.com podcast i'm wendell tull your host until next time work on your game continue to enjoy the game that we love that's division one basketball have a good day